cool. Welcome to the show. Good to have you. This is uh, Thomas Ronkin. You're a CBS colleague, right? You work with us at CBS at HQ. Um, you're also the man, well, you were the former US men's national team U20 manager, and you're the man who just happened to discover Clint in Charlie. So we wanted to get you on and, and just kind of tell us that story, how that went. Well, all first, royalty, 200 plus caps here. Du sprichst Deutsch, Clint und Charlie in a bisschen Morsprechen, die weisen gar nicht, Bobby, richtig. And there's different stories here. I went to Furman Clemson to see Stuart Holden, who played for Clemson, and Ricardo Clark, that was already part of my under 20s, because we were very late in the process in our preparation for the 203 World Cup that actually got pushed back because of Desert Storm, uh, the war. And that's how Clint actually became the last player to make it. So I sit there for five minutes and I'm going, whoa. First, he's in midfield, he's got number two. Well, I come through the Ajax system. Number two is a right back, you know, in terms of numbers, you know, one through 11. And this cat is just wheeling and dealing, trying things that I've not seen before of any other American player, quite frankly. Um, and then you do research and you find out why, you know, why his environment shaped him like the environment shaped you. So our first camp after I introduced myself and I say, you know, I would like to bring you to the R20 camp or in Los Angeles. I asked Ziggy Smith, the coach of the LA Galaxy, if we could play friendly. He said, yeah, that's no problem. We're in the Rose Bowl. First touch of Clint Dempsey, and this is Alexi Lalas, Kobe Jones, and a pretty good team that Ziggy had around that time, obviously. First touch, nutmegs Alexi. Kobe comes 30 yards, stuts him up. Ziggy goes to me, you got to take him off. I understand in a hierarchy that that's, you know, you don't stand up. Disrespect a guy, Clint. exactly, correct. <laughs> that's all I knew. So I went oh, to him, I said, this is terrible, and then I went to him, don't ever change. He didn't play much in two or three because I had a good team in the spine uh, with Eddie, who's the Golden Boot winner, Convy, Ricardo Clark, Ned Grebevoy, Santino, Santino Freddie Du, Mike McGee. Yeah. You know, it was a pretty good team. So he played in two games off the bench a little bit. The last yeah. game that we won the group against yeah, Korea. Uh, South Korea, very yeah. good. I yeah. almost went in against Argentina, but I didn't go. Remember I know, they scored? I know, Clint. You me on the line. Clint. They scored, you're like, hey, go sit down. I said, all right. <laughs> <laughs> One of my greatest mistakes that I didn't do that. I should have gone with my gut, but I, wanted, I was a typical coach. We had 1-1, one, one, overtime, whatever. I should have been more daring, so sorry about that. What about, what about Chuck? Chuck I saw, really, in Massachusetts in a youth tournament, initially. And then there was some regional stuff, but, but he stood out because of his tremendous speed, athleticism, the ability in every game to get literally three or four times in front of the goalkeeper in a 1v1 situation, which is unique as well, different than Clint's, obviously. But he couldn't really score, you know, unsophisticated. He's a high school All-American wrestler, this guy. So he had all the, the, the American typical experiences, whereas Clint, no. I'm playing against Mexicans that are 25 years old, and I got to be combative with my brother Ryan oh. that took me there. So Clint was a rude boy. <laughs> we Char got to Charlie the thought he was damn and one. He had his damn headband, sweatband on, yeah, playing yeah, yeah. Boston <laughs> College. He did. Collar collar pop, collar pop, and everything. Scoring goals against Revolution. Hey, for the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, question: We had uh, we had Josie Altador here, right? And, and he was talking about the fact that at one time Clint wanted to fight him. You obviously thought that Clint was a tough guy, right? In yep. a fight, who do you pick, Clint or Josie? Clint. You do? Yeah. Why? Scrappy, huh? 
I've talked enough to Paul Mariner and Stevie Nichol that I know what went on in New England Revolution. Ooh. You don't want to screw with Flynn, believe me. So do, so do and I. Some and some tough guys wanted to take him to task, by the way. And they all went, oh, okay, I, let me go the other way. I know those stories, but you held your own. Hey, man. But going back to Chuck. These I mean, eyes, I can see every punch being thrown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's peripheral vision. <laughs> Had that panoramic with these big old eyes. But I firmly believe that in these Mexican leagues, illegal Mexican leagues, you had to learn how to protect yourself. Oh, for sure. For sure. You had to. I mean, it's survival of the fittest. And if you disrespected them, which was the style that I played, they're trying to break your legs. So you learn how to jump out of tackles and, and protect yourself and, you know, deal with, like, what it's like to play in CONCACAF, basically. So, right. I mean, it, it really shaped who I was as, as a player. and and gave me that grit that I, that I needed to, to make it at the next level. And, and Charlie then ends up a year later in the Mill Cup becoming the MVP. First time we won hey. a prestigious tournament, hey. which it was. Scores the winner against Serbia Montenegro. Scores a hat trick in the finals against Northern Ireland. <laughs> um, and then Ziggy Schmidt drops you off the 205 World Cup team. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. not my doing, okay? I know, I know. But uh, when you get dropped and it, and it hurts you to the core, that's the only way you grow through those through those moments. I, I'm a player that always, like similar to Clint, I play with a chip on my shoulder. I knew I had to provide for my family, and I knew that this was my way out. I had worked my whole life to get to this position, and you know, the, there's certain moments that you have playing in the Mill Cup, the one before that where I get 20 chances and I don't score, but you see those moments, I have what it takes to be a professional and being success, successful, and, when I won the MVP in that Mill Cup when we won, I knew I was, I wanted to be in Europe. I was destined to be in Europe, and I knew I, I had what it took to succeed. Does it so. hurt you to your core when you get overlooked, Mo? <laughs> Thomas, you overlooked I'm glad you brought that up, yeah, I'm like, yeah, man, he I, got discovered, he got discovered, and we same age, so what happened there, huh? <laughs> what happened? Bad scouting. I'll, I'll be real honest with you, because I'll look at 207, 208, 209, because all three of you ended up at the same time pretty much at the senior men's national team. Different routes. You threw, you know, first pick in the MLS draft, rookie of the year, boom, here you are. And I did go, because at that time, I lived still in DC, because I coached DC United uh, for many years and, and won a championship. So I stayed there when I was the under 20 coach. So I did go to Maryland quite a lot. And I had no idea why you never even got on my radar. Because I'm pretty, I got decent eyes. In saying that, that I'm, amazes me if I look back at your career and what you could have done also for my under-20 team. So, yes, Kate, I, I miss quite a few guys. My team at that time was mostly college guys, so I tried to travel as many cities as I could to watch guys play, as I did with Furman and Clemson. I wasn't playing every time, uh, and I had to pick the best college players, and for whatever reason, Mo, I, I, I didn't pick you, dude. No, but I mean, in fairness, right? Like, that's just... That's it's got to just... be difficult, though, you know what oh, I mean? Oh, for sure. I mean... you got to catch the player on the right game. How many games did you watch each player play? You maybe go to t see them play twice in a year, Next. and they had to show right. out. And you were wearing oh. a Bojangles knee brace, too, so that wasn't a good look. <laughs> right. We still cooked y'all with that knee brace on, too. <laughs> True. Hey, I got, True. They, got, they put a statue of BC. <laughs> I put a banger on them over there. No, but it just, right. it just speaks to the different, the different patterns. Plays, you know what I mean? And everyone doesn't peak at the same time, so maybe at that time there were players that, that you felt were better. So it's, I don't take it as a slight. I, in my mind, I was I was Shaking. working towards something, and like, 
it was just filled with my fire, motivation. I wanted to get to that point. I wanted to get to that position. It didn't happen in that moment, but it wasn't going to deter me. It wasn't going to stop me. I just got, I was just hungrier. Hey, what about you? Played your whole career over here, right? In America, yep. NASL. Mm -hmm. uh, played with Cruyff. Yes. Yes. I mean, as as a Dutchman too, that's got to be special, right? Any any memories that stand out? Anything you can share? Did you see my Goose hair? I, I was 21. I was okay player, but not great. Renus Meagles, the great Renus Meagles. If you talk about generational or, or in the last century, the best coaches, probably Renus Meagles and Johan Cruyff that shaped the game that Pep Guardiola and Manchester City are playing right now. Calls me and goes, I have $1,000 a month. You can share a car with an American. I'm 21, I just finished my studies. And you gotta say yes or no, where you wanna come to LA, because he became the coach of LA Aztecs. I get her there, Jan Cruyff becomes a teammate, Wim Surby, who played in two World Cup finals, also from Ajax, Ruud Kroll, uh, quite a few Dutch players. And I played as a six, so every game I had to mark the number 10. So, uh, George Best, uh, TR, uh, today you're gonna mark George Best. And here I am as a 21-year-old, all heroes of mine, Cruyff the biggest, because I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, an incredible experience in terms of... How did that go, marking George Best? <laughs> Have you ever seen his best goal, George Best, in 19... The NASL had awards for the best goal of the year. It was 1980 of 81 best goal. It's against the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. We scored big-time offside goal. Gerd Mueller, by the way, was a teammate. And because I speak German, he was my roommate. Uh, long story, but whatever. Uh, Best is upset. So he gets the ball from the kickoff. He goes past that two forwards. Nene Kubi has a good, I didn't defend. I'm the first confrontation. He nutmegs me, he stops, allows me to come back again. He gets around me again, cuts a few more people, <laughs> upper V. I don't know if you guys ever been in the San Jose Stadium. Takes the ball, and you're gonna go upper rem. This is before the half. Gets in his car, never returns for the goal, for the game. But that becomes the goal of the year. <laughs> where I look silly, which I'm proud of, by the way. It doesn't matter. You were so different than the typical coaches I've had ever had because your storytelling, one, you two, you personality, you, personality outgoing. You even, you know, you were just nature so nature the beast, brother. You were so real. Uh, <laughs> smoking cigarettes sometimes, like oh my it, god, you killing it, me, dude. It, no, it was, it was refreshing for a young you. player, knowing that you had played with the the best of of the best, and and it's okay to not fit in, to be different. Yes, you know what I mean. You didn't have to be super safe and play simple, you could try shit, you know what I mean? I think that's a big problem that Americans face is they're always scared about messing up. And then that's what I appreciate is like, hey, don't ever change, like keep doing your shit, like that kind of stuff. It's lost upon a lot, I think, the youth, because I don't think a lot of the youth players have that coach that's telling them, go out and try shit, you know? Like express yourself, <laughs> hey, don't be scared. We had a camp in the Netherlands and we had a hard training session and typically, in, in these youth setups, they have things planned for you. There's no free time. And Thomas, we train hard, and he's like, go have a fucking fun time in the city. And I was like, and what'd you big do? mistake, by the way. <laughs> I was like, what? I lost three, no, I lost those, three those times there. almost my job, seriously. That was one of them in Amsterdam, because you guys are underage. <laughs> if it wasn't for Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley, I think Klinsman one time bailed me out as well. Um, so it was the last day in, in Amsterdam. I go, 10 o'clock on the bus. They'll go, oh my God, no curfew. So, guy's bleeding. How you doing? Well, <laughs> I'm somewhere, it's called the red light district, I think, coach, and I'm 
looking at somebody, all of a sudden I'm, I'm getting, oh, you say, yeah, you're either going to go in or you're going to move on. Business, you know, there's pimps out there. Well, that's how that works. <laughs> but these guys didn't know, Kate. They were all protected 18-year-old kids from I Stanford. Call American boys, I didn't know. They know Harvard. I didn't know nothing about no Harvard, red light district. Was, Did you after the trip? I, f I felt like a, an alien. Uh, I, I, there were some guys who um, were, were curious about what the red light district you was all about. You were one of them? I was not one of them. So who was curious? You just followed suit then? No, it was one of those things where you're, you're like little kids, you're like, oh, who's gonna, who's gonna go in the red light district? And there were some guys who were professionals. They, were, they weren't kids, because they had been in those professional environments in the locker rooms with men, and they were out. And, we're, and for me, I was just like traumatized. Which, which was a very small select group. The reason why I did it, because my first confrontation in 2000, when I went on the 20 call, just said, we're so naive. We were white upper middle class, let's be real honest. And these guys bucked the trend a little bit. Just, just look at them. But I had Stanford kid, the guy from Harvard, uh, Andre Arpan, uh, uh, Chet Marshall, uh, Jordan Harvey on the left side, you know, all beautiful kids. They got a dog, they got a girlfriend, they got a house with a, with a fence, and I don't know. But when it comes down to playing against Argentina, Brazil, where these guys come from the favela, they do anything. And Clint was the first one that I said was able to defend himself. So I said, I got to send him out into Amsterdam and, and understand what street, street life is all about. Maybe they get pickpockets and they understand to put your wallet not in your back, but in your front pocket. That's life experiences that you can use in the field. I used to take this team to a Boca River game every year in the Bombonera and put them close to the crazy fence. And Chet Marshall, half an hour before the guard goes, Oh my God, this is dangerous, coach. What's going on? All these fences, what's happening? <laughs> I know, yeah, dude, wait till the game starts. But true. Yeah. So I walked a fine line with minors to give them life experiences that they can use on, on, on the field. And as I said again, although Clint was quiet, he knew how to fend for himself and then still also do his, his things as well, which was, which was unique. And that way of thinking was so different, right? So. He's putting players in those circumstances and those environments. And I, I think that's why we all respect you so much, because you've touched so many players. A number of the players in our generation that made it, you had, you had coached them. They Thank had you. gotten a chance to, to see and hear about those stories, which ultimately helped shape us. And then when you, when you see them playing in a World Cup, what's that moment for you? You must feel like a, you're like a father yeah, figure special. at that point almost. Yeah, it is, because you feel you've contributed. Kate, I don't contribute a lot because I see these guys, as you know, at national teams four or five times a year qualifying and then maybe a World Cup if we make it. So I, the other end, I, I'm, I'm really appreciative that I gave them a chance, but that they really made themselves eventually. I just pushed them along a little bit. Uh, credit to all of them. You never played for youth national teams and still got there. Well done. You. You know, wrestler slash, not knowing really his own body yet and then what you could do, all of a sudden, there you go. And you go to Europe. You, you say, you know what, MLS? I want to go to Europe. It's a show, whatever, the experiences. Clint used MLS as a springboard. You used MLS as a springboard as well. So, yes, it is special when I see these guys play on the highest level, represent their countries, which, which is a proud moment. I didn't know some of these stories about the way that you went about your camps or the things that you did. Obviously, I wasn't there, but, like, so just hearing that, Footballing part of it is one thing, but I appreciate the way that you're able to merge the two and you have a bigger picture perspective because ultimately, yeah, we all want to be professionals, but there are 
kids. You're also grooming these young men and using that lens of sport and finding different ways to, you know, instill in them certain things that carry on beyond the, beyond the pitch. I think that's equally as important. So, I mean, credit to you, man. I think that's, I think we're seeing the, the fruits of, of some of the work that you put in with some of these yeah. guys. Thank you. It's very cool to be able to honor you like that. So there's another connection here, right, which is your first game back that you played after the car crash. You were broadcasting that. You were doing the commentary. You remember that? Uh, very much so. DC United is uh, a legendary club in Major League Soccer, iconic. And he was one of the, the coaches that had helped really put this league in a competitive spirit and, and developing top players and coaching top players and having helped me in, on my pathway to becoming a professional, all of a sudden making it to that point where we're beating Spain in the Confederations Cup. Scoring we're, Azteca. We're scoring in Azteca, living my dream, so close to finally playing in a World Cup, cut short because of this car accident. And then realizing, okay, there's bigger things to, to life than, than sports and soccer. But I have to promise myself that I got to do everything I can to get back what I've lost. Because sometimes you, we take things for granted. And not that I didn't put everything into the sport, but I knew I took things for granted because I, I shouldn't have been in the position that I was in. So I just, I said, I'm going to commit myself 24 hours a day to get back on the pitch. And there was questions if I'd be able to run again. So I finally get an opportunity to take a loan to DC United from my French club, Sochaux. In my first game back, it's a year and a half. I'm nervous. I come off the bench, and I, I, we, we get a penalty kick. And the captain's Dax McCarty picks up the ball, and he hands it to me. And he's like, here's your moment. And so that was the match where I felt I was reborn, not only as a player, but as a person because I, I understood how hard I had to work to get to this point and how much harder I have to work to sustain that level, but the appreciation for the game and, and the, the, the support that I had, the love that I felt in that moment is, is indescribable. And Thomas Rongen was in the booth and, and he was calling those goals. I scored two goals and against Chad Marshall, who he also helped develop, which, um, was just one of those magical moments that will always stand out in, in, in my life. What, what was going through your mind seeing me and... Especially well, first, after all that rehab you had to do. First, guilt. Guilt? I, yeah, because I, I care deeply about the, the guys that I try to touch as best as I can so they can move up and play for the senior team. That, that I thought was my role as an under-20 coach. Develop them, make them better, which in all cases, although more different, but in your case, is that, that did happen. Um, I, I never called you after the accident. And we had a connection. Yeah. Clint is more distant. But I also feel very bad about Clint because I knew that he lost his, his, his sister. And I lost my daughter probably a few months after the two or three uh, World Cup. I got a little emotional. And I never reached out to him because I, I do understand what he went through. And I know how big his sister's role was in, in your life. So I, I, I don't feel good about that. In saying that, it was a, an incredible occasion to call that game, obviously, and you do score, and you come back from this tragic situation that nobody thought you would even walk. So that's, in itself, obviously incredible. Can I, can I ask you a question? Is yeah. there a reason you didn't 
make those calls that now you say you wish you did? I don't, I don't, I really don't know, Kate. I mean, I mean that sincerely. Um, I didn't cry for two years. And I knew what he was going through, but I, 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 I just couldn't pick up the phone and I didn't know where to start. And, and I, I, I'm Dutch, I'm direct, so I, I, my emotions were, were all over the place. And I, 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 I should have done, looking back, I'm almost 70, a better job in staying in touch, not just with a few, but with all the guys that I really genuinely cared about during my uh, time that I, I touched you guys for a year or two at the under 20s, and I didn't. Um, something you, you learned from, obviously. I mean, I feel like you should never lose sleep about anything with me. You gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. You allowed me to go Project 40, being on that U20 team, allowed me to go pro forever. I will be indebted, grateful for that, you know what I mean? And then even though we don't talk, there's always love there, you know what I'm saying? Because I know how big that was for me. So, you know, in terms of me and Ebro, even though we don't talk that much, it's always been love. No, I, I, feel the same I know way. that with most of my players. It seems like I have a unique ability to have something about me that players, I don't know, maybe I'm Dutch, I'm democratic. I allow them to think with me. Uh, I make mistakes, they make mistakes. And I think my human side allowed these guys to get a little bit closer to me than to other coaches. And most of these guys that came back, Josie included, Eddie Johnson, that played for the MLS teams where they didn't play all the time. They would come to the under-20s where they would play all the time and enjoy those experiences just like I did because these guys just loved it. And those groups were always tight-knit as they were then, as you guys are, are now. That's a brotherhood. The, the moment before I took the penalty, I could feel what did, the pressure. Wouldn't that have, was that the, the game that you would have come back to and played in after y'all qualified for the World Cup? Would it, the national team game, would have that been in D.C.? The, the car accident was on a Monday night. We were playing Wednesday in D.C. So it was almost like full circle in terms of completely that, Completely right? full circle. That's and crazy. What was, cra what was even more crazy about the, the situation was behind the bench, all the doctors and nurses who helped save my life that night were there. So I'm, I'm warming up and I'm looking at the doctor and he's like, give me the thumbs up. And I, I make the substitution, the penalty happens, he hands me the ball, I put it down, and I could feel the weight of the rest of my career, my life, the sacrifices I've made, the, the, and also at the same time, on the flip side, I let down a lot of people. I let down my family, I let down myself, I let down my family, I let down the fans, and I felt I owed everyone this moment to get back on the pitch to do everything I could to show that I that I love the game and I appreciate you know supporters and and the faith and so when I see it hit the back of the net it's that emotion I, I I'm really feeling it inside yeah. but that that emotion RFK has got a lot of iconic moments all the way back to the Redskins but also DC United national team games and I've been at most of them because I coached DC for quite a few years uh, and stayed there for a long time when I was the under 20 coach or the Olympic coach or assistant coach of the national team. And that was in my top three of bone chilling kind of moments that I've had in the booth. Brilliant. This was cool to have you come through and, and share the stories. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you coming through. Thank you. Thanks for having me and love you guys. You, you know that.
It's a mutual filler, man. Oh my Honestly. God, I'm getting up chunky and bubbly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kate. I appreciate you. Thank Good you. to see you. I should have told. I should have told the story at the World Cup when I found out that Clint was a big-time freestyler. Oh, this oh is, yes. And we win the group. We beat Korea. Actually, you play a little bit in there. Yes, right? but right. it was a game that like. And Knox Cameron, you remember Knox? Yep. Be, you know, yeah, the striker, yeah. Coach, fucking Clint Dempsey, man. He's a freestyler. So I go, okay, Clint, we're in the bus. It's great. And he starts, and the whole team. And you were, I didn't know Texas rap, man, was your like stuff in high school. Yeah, my first car I had didn't have a radio, so it was like I would freestyle, like what we were doing. There was whole Swisher House thing, and then that was my thing. When you were the new guy, it's like do something. Great. So either tell a joke or freestyle. And I just would freestyle. All right, same. Tell a joke or freestyle. Neither. Neither. Y'all ain't gonna do me uh, like that. No, hey, it's yo, been a good show. Uh, All right. Go ahead. Pulls us out. And it, it has been a good show. You gotta do it You see. You see, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Nah, I'm on, good. Gotta, they don't guess. This is the hey, Thomas. <laughs> hey, Thomas. Hey, my brother. Come on, dude. If the former coach says that was one of the best performances, I mean, necessarily, on a bust in, in on a bus in the UAE, with a hundred CIA get agents with guns because yeah. of the war, and you're rapping, freestyling yeah. in. In other Abu words, Dhabi. why can't you do it in front of this audience? Come on, dude. Come on. I've never seen you turn one down. All right, here we go. All right. Hey, what do you rap about? You, you, right. you pick it, brother. The show, right. man, the show. It's the boy named Clint. These haters, they got me bent. Everybody know I rap like 50 Cent. Nah, I got the solo cup. Got the game sold up. Matter of fact, back in the day, you was in the World Cup for the U-20s, for the <laughs> USA. Ball and parlay. More brighter than the sun. Crossed you up like Ira's son. Everybody know it's the boy before I was done. Hey! <laughs> Is that a new necklace, Kate? It's just a little bit for Sasha. Uh, it's just a little something hey. I got for him, you know? No, we ain't done yet. We ain't done. I Jelani, I got Wait a minute, it. you thought we were finished? <laughs> Hold up. I, th I thought we were finished. Why, are we not done? Nah, because okay. you know what? At the end of the day, Clint talked a lot about the way he came up. Yeah. Mo, we just heard about Mo. <laughs> we heard about me. We ain't heard Yeah, well, I don't like it to be about, about me. You. you know that. So now yeah, how'd you get now started? Now it's on you, Kate. How did I get started in what? Um, I would say your love for football, soccer, and getting into the TV side of things. I mean, football, I feel like that's just culture back home, right? Like, that's part of life. My parents are both PE teachers, so they're both super into sports, but very into football, particularly. Um, my dad's a Man United fan. My mom's a Liverpool fan. They don't like to sit in the same room when, when those two teams play each other. They're, they're hardcore with it. And you side with your dad. I did. did yeah. They each used to buy me different shirts, but I, yeah. Any regret in My that? favorite was that yellow and green. Remember the old school yellow and green away kit for Man United with Sharp on the front? Um, but yeah, but Manchester was home to me, so it just felt more natural to side with, with that. And TV, TV I didn't want to do at all. I wanted to be a translator. I had moved to Spain when I had finished high school, so I was like 17. I had done my, my degree in Spain, and then I went to Germany. I got offered like an internship at a TV station, and they, they had a sports anchor who was kind of volatile. And he, he anchored the sports news, and he stormed out one day. He quit uh, over a, a, a dispute. And so they decided they wanted to cast within the network. And the boss of the network came to me and said, oh, I think you should try out. You, you know, we, you already know the system. We know you can write scripts. 
you should try out. And I said, no, thank you. I, I have no interest in trying. I don't want to be on TV. And he said, just do, like, do me a favor. Just do it. If it's terrible, we'll never talk about it. But what you got to lose, just do the casting. Um, and I'll leave you alone. So I did the casting. It was like a, <laughs> it was like sports news. So you're at a desk. I did not know what to wear. So you weren't I, wearing your Fendi and Armani. <laughs> I'm not sure what was it. I borrowed a blazer off someone. It was too big for me. It was like an orange blazer. I looked about 40. Um, and I did this casting, which I've since seen somebody send it to me. Horrific. It's terrible. It's really bad. Um, so I don't know what they saw in it, but they offered me the job. He came to me, said, the job's yours if you want. And I said, but I, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to do this. He said, listen, you're an intern. This is what you earn right now. It was not a lot. He said, if you, if you take this job, you'll be doing the news, sports news, five days a week. I'll pay you this. I was like, oh. You said, I'm in. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm in. This became a little more interesting. And so I did it. And they gave me a day's training. And then they put me on the news. Um, which is a blessing because, I mean, you don't normally get that kind of exposure, that kind of opportunity, right, without having any experience, any desire. Um, so I've always felt like this was something that, the kind of a path that God laid out for me because I didn't go searching for it, it kind of found me. And I, I feel really blessed because I feel like it's always been easy. Don't get me wrong, I work, I work hard in any opportunity I'm given, right? I always want to be prepared. I always want to give my best. I never want to let anybody down, including myself. This is an industry a lot of people want to be in, and people are really hustling to, to get ahead in it. And God's just been good to me. Like, I haven't had that. But I think also that you can see, like, the hard work that you put in, the, the prep and understanding, like, the flow of a show and, like, what questions to ask, like, the timing and stuff like that. If that's something that is a skill that you have. You know, you're, you're, you're a good people person. You can read the room very well. I think you get along with a lot of different types of people, but also I think the hard work that you put in and it, it helps us, because I remember my first episode of being on there and by you asking that, that difficult question, like, are you broke? You know what I mean? It just kind of like made me stop thinking about like being on TV and then I'm able to like go in, in terms of being able to, to talk with you more and not be so nervous. Like it, like, I think that's a skill that you have. And, but for me, I'm just curious to like, you do a lot of different sports, but it seems like you're more passionate about soccer. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, football feels like home to me. I love boxing too. And that's the other sport I really, I really love to work in. But football has that kind of that familiarity, that feeling of, um, like of comfort, of safety. Like it just, it reminds me of going home. It reminds me, even now when I go home, you know, my parents are nearly 80 now and I go home on weekends. If I'm doing a Champions League show in London, I'll get the train to Manchester. And that weekend is about what football game is on, when are we watching it, um, watching match of the day. Like, all of that stuff just feels like home to me. So, uh, you know, if I'm there, I'll go watch my, my nephew playing his game. I'll go watch my niece playing her game. Um, so football just has that kind of, there's a love for football, which I feel like that can't be undone. You know what I mean? Now we're all in the same space, right? And so I'm sure there's people that you look at and you're like, oh, I like certain bits of how they come across as an analyst. You try to pick and choose. Same, mm. I do the same thing, right? But you're still also creating your own style. You're creating, you're shaping yourself into the way that you want to come across, right? Where's that all come from? Is that something that you saw someone else in your early days of, of getting into this space and like, ooh, I like how she does that. I'm going to pick little bits and pieces from there. Or was it just kind of a natural progression for you? So that's funny, I've thought about that sometimes. Um, in part, I would credit my brother, right? Because I feel like 
I grew up in that culture of like that banter culture of my, my brother always being really quick to, to crack on me. And the only way you survived in that environment was if you had a quick answer, right? If you could come back, if you could hang with the boys in that way. And so I think, you know, it's a male dominated space essentially still. And you have to be able to hang with the boys to be able to get their respect somehow. Um, and so I think my, my brother shaped me in that way because he had no mercy. He's still like that. Um, he'll destroy me at the first opportunity. Um, and so I think I learned to kind of like not be intimidated by that male energy, not be intimidated to like crack a joke. Why shouldn't I? I think, you know, I remember um, the, first, the first show I did in America was I, I had hosted some event for Franz Beckenbauer in Austria. And the president of Fox was in the audience and they had just won the, um, the rights to the 2015 World Cup. And so they came up to me afterwards and said, listen, we're going to do the World Cup. We'd be interested in you hosting. Are you, are you open to it? We would talk to Sky because Sky and Fox were like partners at the time. And so that opportunity came in about and I got to do American television for the first time. Up until that point, I'd only done stuff in Germany, Spain, England, whatever, like Europe. And, and you guys know what that's like. You've been based over there. It's, it's stiff. We do a different type of TV. It's not personality driven. It's information driven. And so I think I had been really drilled in that European way. And you become kind of boring because essentially everybody's doing the same thing. Um, and I think it was that first taste of American TV where I really got to see like, oh, you can, you can let loose on American TV. This is different. I like that. I don't want to do a European TV no more because that's boring to me now. And so I was very clear once I finished that, that 2015 World Cup, I was like, I, I want to be in America. That's where I want to be. That's the television that I look up to. That's the, the style of broadcasting that excites me. So that's where I want to go. And so that was always the aim from that point. But I genuinely, and I'm not saying this because this is like a CBS show, I genuinely don't think that I got to be me on TV until the Champions League show came about. And I had never been given that kind of rope before. And so all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool, let's just have fun. Let's do this. Um, and I feel really blessed by that too because I feel like the job I was doing at other networks, pretty much anybody can do that. You can go in, you can read a prompter, you can be informed enough to ask the right questions, but you're never really gonna stand out. And I think CBS gave me an opportunity to potentially stand out because you get to do things in your own way and bring your own character into the mix. I remember when I was at Sky, I, I was at one point told like, too much smiling from you, too much ha ha ha, like, Welcome people in. Yeah, welcome people in and get to the point. And now, if you think about like the Champions League, and one of the things that's so successful is like those stupid intros where I'll crack a joke at Micah's expense or whatever, and like that's part of the fun. Um, like you getting up and doing the robot, and you boys all making like the squeaky noise because the robot was so bad. Like that's or just Elvis. <laughs> well, we all love some Elvis. Elvis. Right. Like those are moments that I just. <laughs> Do you know what I'm weird? I feel like sometimes I don't remember that the camera's there, and perhaps sometimes we should all be more conscious that the camera is there, right? That, that would be wise. That's but what I, happens when you get us together. <laughs> I think it's a blessing to me sometimes that I'm not super conscious. Hey, this is Champions League. Millions of people are watching or whatever. Or you're like, like hey, this is CONCACAF, and millions of people are watching, now I'm vibing with my guys. <laughs> but the, the thing is, do you feel like you get the chance to be yourself more on the Champions League show or being kicking it or with the shows with us? Like, where does that balance? You feel like it's exactly the same or do you feel like 
even more so one way or the other, even though that, that was your first time where you felt like you got to be more of yourself? Is there a right answer here, Clint? I'm trying to get you to like our side a little bit better. <laughs> but as, hey, just give us the, the truthful side. Um, I think that, I think both of them is me. I think I'm the same person on both shows. Um, I feel like, I've always said this, like I feel like this group is different in that we have a friendship that exists outside of the show. Not that that doesn't exist in London, but not in the same way. Um, you know, like you guys have always made me feel like I'm part of the family. Like I remember being, it was, I was going through a difficult time when we first started doing some of these shows. It was September, this time last year. And personally, I was in a difficult spot and I was just down. And I remember like avoid, you know, when it's like when you're not dealing well with your own emotions, you kind of isolate from people a little bit. And I remember like avoiding, you guys would say, hey, come up, we're gonna get sushi in this room or we're in such and such's room, like come get food with us. And I was like, no, I'm, go I'm in the gym, I'm this, I'm that. And, and you would be texting me like, no, we're waiting for you. Like, are you coming? You never let me kind of not be part of the family. And especially at that time, like that, that meant the world to me. Um, and so there's just, there's a sense of family and like brotherhood, sisterhood that I don't have with another group. And so, yeah. Okay, Clint. There we go. That's the answer. <laughs> That's the answer. going to be heard yeah. about that one. That's the clip. <laughs> so you, you didn't want to do this, okay, mm -hmm. initially. You go from doing translation to now being one of the world's best. Do you ever think about that process and, and that moment that now, like us, when we were professional athletes, people looked up to us, people want to be us. I hear, I can't tell you how many people I've come across are like, I want to be Kate. Kate's the coolest. Like, I want to be on TV because of Kate. Gold standard. Do you, does it, has that sunk in? Are you aware of that? That you're, you have the power to inspire so many people around the world, especially women, little girls, who are, who are maybe not thinking TV was a, being around men, being, you know, in a male-dominated kind of room, being like the, the, the person that everyone looks to? Um, I don't live in a space where I think I'm good. So, I, like, it's hard aware? for me are to kind of, of, huh? Are you aware of your impact? Are you aware of, like, your I mean, influence? I, see, I focus so much on what I would wish I had done differently that I find it hard to like think, man, I'm killing it, I'm this, I'm that. Am I aware that like I'm in places I never thought I would be and I'm super grateful for? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, I know that when, when I was coming up, there, there wasn't a somebody like me that I looked at and thought, oh, maybe that's the job for me then. Like I just never really assumed, I just kind of thought that wasn't really open to me. Um, so if I think about it in those terms, I feel really fortunate that I get to be somebody that, you know, someone else's daughter potentially can at some point look at and be like, oh, I, I like how she does that. That's something I could do. Um, so I love that I get to represent in that way. Um, I find it hard to think that people could look up to the way I do things because that's just not who I am. But um, I definitely feel privileged to, to have maybe made a path for somebody else that now, I just think it's so important, like oftentimes in sports, and I, I don't say that, I don't mean to disrespect anybody with this, but traditionally it's often been the case that women have been given position because of a look, right? And it wasn't necessarily because of, like, because of 
being competent or being qualified. Like there was a look that you had to have, like it was a glamorous woman who was on sports sideline, right? And I, I think that that damaged things for, for women who wanted to make headway in that area for, for a period of time because a, it set a really hard standard in terms of like, hey, if you want to achieve in this, like you have to look this kind of a way. This is what you'll be judged off. And B, it, it, it meant that men didn't look at women who'd been given those opportunities and think, well, man, they're really good at what they do. They deserve to be in this place, right? And so then you had to kind of battle with this idea that because you're a woman, you don't necessarily deserve to be here. It, I remember like when I started at CNN, and I remember walking in and those guys were skeptical. Like they, they weren't convinced immediately, I don't think. They're a great group of people and I have a lot of love for them. But I remember going for like a lunch on the first day and I really felt like, man, I, I'm here trying to convince everybody that I know sports. Because I was questioned and drilled in a way that I don't think a man would ever have been drilled. Like he would have been asked more personal stuff about who he was, his family, did he have kids, whatever, any of that kind of stuff. But I was there to prove that I, I was worthy of the job in a way that that's a hurdle that I think men don't have to jump through. Um, so if I can be somebody that changes a man's perspective on female broadcasters, that's something that would make me really proud. Because I, I, I want people to feel like not, oh, she's my favorite female broadcaster. I just want to be somebody's favorite. I want to be better than whoever else you think is good. Oh, you are. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Do, do you ever like, because you started off by saying, no, I don't want to do that. I'm happy being a translator. Like, this is what I want to do. Do you ever think of like, look back and think, what if you would have actually stuck to your guns and been like, no, I'm going to be a translator? And what, what life would be like at this point in time for you? A lot less Versace. We all know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man, I think I would have been happy. Like, uh, that's still something. I, I like I love that kind of that world. I love learning different languages, culture, all of that stuff really appeals to me. But nobody's ever used it. And football's so international that it's kind of crazy that nobody's ever used it. And I remember CBS, so we were doing a live broadcast, Champions League, and you know how all those interviews come through the world feed and they're all done by different people in different languages and they're just available to you. And, Pete, the producer, was in the control room in London. This is how I was told the story, because I'm live on air. Um, and he says, don't we have any, you know, we need interviews. We need some reaction from the games. And the British producer says, well, um, yeah, but we only have such and such, and they're speaking Spanish. And Pete's like, so? She says she speaks Spanish. And Matt, the British producer, well, but what if, you know, what if she messes up? What if she doesn't understand? Like, what? He's, Pete's like, well, we're going to laugh at her. Like, she's told mm. us all she's fluent. Like, we'll yeah, have some fun with that. So let's just throw it on. And so they, that was the first time I'd ever been put in that position. And that was really cool to me where those kind of couple of worlds, like, collided. Same doing the Ballon d'Or where, you know, you had, I think at one point I had Manuel Neuer, um, Lionel Messi, trying to think who else, somebody in French, and I, I can't, like I switched from, maybe it was Karim Benzema or whoever on stage, and I got to switch from the French to the German to the Spanish That's and wild. look pretty cool doing it, you That's know? Yeah. Um, that was my flex. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, like, I, I'm, I'm really glad I went that route. I'm really glad that I got that qualification. It, it's definitely helped me. Um, am I glad that I, yeah, my, I like, I'm so lucky. Like, this is such a good life. I get to travel all over. I get to hang out with people I really like. 
more so here than in London, but I like them too, you know, Yeah, Clint. that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, and I just, you know, life is life has been so good to me. God has been so good to me. So yeah, I wouldn't change it for a will for the world. If somebody like I always feel like there's a there's a window on women in, in broadcasting, right? And so at some point maybe my face isn't gonna fit anymore and at that point maybe that's what I'll go back to, but um I don't know, maybe I'll just be selling like secondhand Versace out the trunk of my car. This is going to keep me going. It's a lot. You got a lot of that to sell. So you flipped the segment on me. I should have known it was coming. Yeah, it feels good. <laughs> but it's, it's good, like, hearing the different stories, hearing your story. I mean, I think it's every time that we get together, we, we find out something new about each other when we already thought we knew a lot. We know each other for a few years now. We've known each other. Uh, more than that from the national team experience, but it's like there's still stories that I hear from like having this opportunity for the, a show like this that, you know, I didn't necessarily know that that was how it all happened for you to get to where you are today. It's cool. It makes us feel like even more tight-knit of a group, and, you know, I look forward to the, the other stories that we're going to hear in the future. Amen. I'm loving this experience. Love you guys. Love you too. Mm -hmm. Much love.